All right, so we're going to continue on with uh, studying through the book of Joshua. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. All right. We'll read the whole chapter, uh, but I'm only going to focus on the first 12 verses for today. Joshua chapter 5. Now it happened when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, Make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way when they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel had walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, were completely destroyed because they did not listen to the voice of Yahweh, to whom Yahweh had sworn that he would not let them see the land which Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their sons whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it happened that when they had completed circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Then the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal and celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the yield of the land, unleavened cakes, and roasted grain. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the produce of the land of Canaan during that year. Now it happened when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as commander of the host of Yahweh. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his slave? The commander of the host of Yahweh said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So as I said, we're going to focus on the first 12 verses on an interesting topic. Word as mentioned numerous times throughout these verses, circumcision. So, no, a favorite topic, um, something that you probably wouldn't pick unless you're actually going verse by verse through the Bible. So, uh, with that, we'll start in. What is circumcision? Multiple answers to that question. Depends on how you want to approach it. So, we're going to approach it by going to the book of Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 17. Would somebody be willing to read the first 14 verses? Sure. Genesis uh, 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. I have made for you, excuse me, I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is walked among must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the circumcised, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the answer to the question, what is what is circumcision? In the context of this chapter, it's an outward sign of the covenant between God and his people. Right? So in Genesis chapter 17. Verse 7 and 8, it talks about God's side of the covenant. <clears throat> the covenant to get to be God to you and to your seed after you. So the first part is he will be their God. The second part, verse 8, he will give to them or to you, to your seed after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and, he, and I will be their God. So a sign of the covenant from God's side, he's going to be their God, and he's promised them the promised land, Canaan. On the people's side, right, is, is going to be the sign of circumcision. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So it's an outward expression of a, sta- of a covenant between God and his people. So the question then becomes, if they've no- if you know, for circumcision here in the context of this chapter, Joshua having to do this to the entire nation, would this have been a surprise to to him? And my thought is, no, it would not have actually been a surprise. He would have known this was coming for multiple reasons. First reason, right, go back in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. God commanded Joshua, only be strong and very courageous to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. 
verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous. So if you're going to study, and you know you're about to enter the promised land, I would think some of the things you probably go focus on in that is what's been told, what has been promised about crossing and entering the promised land, and focus on that. Exodus chapter 13, verse 5 God, through Moses, prophesied of what they would be doing as soon as they crossed over, crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. Exodus 13, 5. And it shall be when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing of milk and honey, that you shall do this service in this month. And what is the service? It's referenced in... Um, Verses 10 through 12 of Joshua chapter 5, they're going to do the Passover. So what are the requirements for the Passover? For that, we have to look at Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read 43 through 51. Martin, would you mind reading that? Exodus 12, 43 through 51. Let me see if my Bible's got the 43 chapter. <laughs> Exodus 43. Exodus 12. Oh, I'll just call right? Exodus chapter 12, 43 through 51. Circumcised him, then he, he may eat it. A sojourner and an hired servant should not eat it. Right? 43 to 45. Through 51. Oh, 51. Okay. In one house it shall be eaten. You should not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel should keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let him come near and keep it, and he shall be a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born, and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their so Joshua would have known, one, if they're about to do the Passover, the requirements for the Passover as detailed here. So what, are the one, what is the first requirement as mentioned? They've got to be circumcised. The next requirement for eating the Passover, it shall be in a single house. Third requirement, it shall not bring any forth, shall not bring forth any flesh outside of the house that they're, celib- that they're eating it in, and shall not break any br- bone of the, <clears throat> of the offering. And then the last requirement, all the congregation is to participate in this. So everybody, to be able to celebrate, is going to have to be circumcised. So I don't think this 
would be a surprise to Joshua, knowing that they're about to partake of the Passover. The second thing that I don't believe that would be a surprise is there's a specific time of year specific that uh, the Passover is to be celebrated. Deuteronomy chapter 16. We'll talk about the, de- the timing and some of the other details of the Passover. First eight verses. Keep the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to Yahweh your God. For in the month of Abib, Yahweh your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall sacrifice the Passover to Yahweh your God from the flock and the herd in the place where Yahweh chooses for his name to dwell. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your gates of the towns of which Yahweh your God is giving you. But at the place where Yahweh your God chooses for his name to dwell, there you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset, at the appointed time that you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook and eat it in the place which Yahweh your God chooses. In the morning you are to return to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to Yahweh your God. You shall do no work on it. <clears throat> so, in combination with the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if you flip back to Exodus 13... I'll talk about that. But while you're flipping to Exodus 13, so the significance of the time of year, if you remember, when they crossed into the crossed the Jordan, right, it was flooded. Why was it flooded? Well, early in the year, snowpack is melting, so the river is getting is absorbing all that water, and the river is flooded. The time of year that happens is late March, early April. That's the same time that is commanded here that they should partake of the Passover as we just read in Deuteronomy 16, right? In accordance with that, with observing the Passover, they're also to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All of this, right, is connected back to their exodus from Egypt. Passover marking uh, the, the death of the firstborn of all those in Egypt that didn't have the blood on the doorposts. And then the unleavened bread here is, a, is also the symbolizing, right, they left in a hurry. So, uh, unleavened, as we'll talk about with um, later in the chapter, is things that are basically kind of unprocessed. Um, you know, typically we think about this with respect to yeast and allowing things to rise, but uh, they left in a hurry, so whatever raw food they had is what they had. So Exodus 13, 3 through 16, we'll give the details here of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Peter, would you mind reading that? Verses 3 through 16? Exodus 13. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. He said through 16. Through 16, actually. On this day you are going out in the month of 
Abed. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. You shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem, so it shall be. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand, and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So there's certainly plenty of details here with respect to when Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is supposed to occur, the requirements for conducting the celebration, and how long the celebration is supposed to last. So Joshua following through what God commanded him in chapter 1, uh, I don't believe this would be a surprise to him. He would know that the people, uh, that he's going to have to go through this ceremony, uh, and he knows that the people uh, have not been circumcised. How would he know that, right? He, he left Egypt with them and is one of the two, two men uh, that are remaining uh, that were not killed off in the wilderness because of their rebellion. So with respect to that, would this have been a surprise to the people themselves? Um, and I think the answer to that is likely yes. Uh, they wouldn't have known. And so what is the evidence to kind of support that, right? Um, one, the people are just now coming into this land uh, where people are going to be hostile towards them, probably not the first thing on their mind, right? It's going to be defense. Um, you know, are we, are we going to get attacked now that we're on the other side of the river and the river's closed up and we're kind of trapped here? Um, not the first thing on their mind, right? So uh, even just celebrating the Passover itself, uh, regardless of any of the requirements, is not going to be what they're expect. I don't think what they're going to expect to do. Um, further, to meet the requirements, they have to be circumcised. That's going to render them defenseless, right? All of the males above 20 are going to need time to heal, 
And even after they're healed, it's going to take some time for them to be ready to fight, right? So not what they're expecting to do, come across, come across a river into a hostile land and then be completely defenseless. With respect to even knowing that they would have to take the Passover, I don't think they would have even known when they would need to do it. Um, the last time that it's documented that they actually, that Israel uh, conducted a Passover celebration or feat in the unleavened Feast of Unleavened Bread was back at Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 9. After, after that uh, observance of the Passover is when Israel rebelled, when they sent the spies into the land, came back, got scared because of the reports, didn't go. Right, And then Numbers chapter 14, God said, that's fine, you're not going at all. I'm not even going to let you see the land. So everybody under 20 is who is left. Right? Everybody, that generation was forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation had, had passed away, leaving their kids that God is now going to allow, has allowed, to enter the promised land and restore his covenant with his people. So there's no, as I said, there's no evidence that, or it's not stated anywhere that they celebrated the Passover for 40-ish years. So further evidence here is that for that, is that the people themselves that are here haven't been circumcised. So uh, that also probably means that the generation that has been rebelling has been rebelling and that they haven't even been raising that, their kids in the ways of God's law. So they're probably fairly ignorant as to what they need to do, uh, when they need to do it, and so forth, right? They're completely relying on Joshua in this respect. <clears throat> right, and that's, and that's what's detailed here in Joshua chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. There's some, um, when actually just kind of reading through the text, right, at the at the beginning of the text, specifically, <clears throat> verse 2. The end of verse 2, when God is, Yahweh is commanding Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So there's some discussion in various commentaries about what does that mean. Um, I think that, you know, trying to, Trying to read into that, uh, it kind of complicates it. I think the answer to that is very simple, and that's what is captured in verses 4 through 7 of Joshua chapter 5. And basically is what I just kind of summarized. Right, The people have not been circumcised to this point, and so now it is something that needs to be done for multiple reasons. Um, but Sorry, I lost my thought. So God is, need, God is going to restore his covenant. These people are outside of his covenant, as we read earlier, with respect to the Passover requirements. If they're not circumcised, uh, they're out. Period. So with respect to Joshua following through with actually circumcising the people, the people being defenseless for uh, you know, probably a week or, or more, does God really know what he's doing in this case? Obviously, the answer is yes. But what, it, what can we look at, learn from the text to kind of prove that out? 
Well, first, right, there's the, the timing. The timing of all of this is, is somewhat astounding, right? So Exodus chapter 13, I've already referenced it, um, and we read through, read through that. Uh, verse 5, God, through Moses, predicted that when they crossed over into promised land, they were going to observe the Passover. Second, right, the time of year that in the specific day they're commanded to observe the Passover. They're supposed to observe the Passover on the 14th. So they've crossed, they've wandered around for 40 years, generation has died off, and they've crossed the Jordan at a very specific time, roughly around the 10th of this month, just in time for them to meet the Passover requirements and observe the Passover on the 14th, the day that they were, they've been commanded to do it. So think about all the aspects that have to come together for all of that timing to work out, right? You've got a couple million people that are going to wander around and, you know, kind of morbidly, you're waiting for them to die. <laughs> right? And as soon as they die, okay, pack up, get across the river. Well, the river's flooded. I'll get you across it. Don't worry about it. They complete all of that at a very specific time. So obviously God, God's sovereignty, God's providence, obviously in control of the situation of the timing of when they're going to accomplish this. The other piece talked about the Israelites being defenseless. Well, what is stated in, in verse 1 of chapter 5 here? Basically, the people are already conquered. Verse 1, now it happened when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how Yahweh dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now would they have known this? Would the Israelites have known this? At least Joshua would have known, right? When he sent the spies over to Jericho in chapter 2, they came back with the report. Verses chapter two, verses nine through eleven, and said to the so Rahab talking to the spies, I know that Yahweh is giving you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Verse eleven, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So while the people may not recognize it, the people may not know, Joshua at least knows. So God has, encouraged, has at least encouraged Joshua, strengthened him. So he at least knows that even though they're going to be defenseless, um, they're trapped at this point uh, on this side of the river with their adversaries, they're, they're fine. God has already given them the land. He's already conquered the people, regardless of whether the Israelites themselves know it. So further answering the question, does God know what he's doing? Uh, as I kind of referenced here, um, I mean, yes. Uh, from a location perspective, there's nowhere for them to go. They've got two options at this point. They can either try to cross a flooded river, or they can take their chances with the people that they don't know or people that are going to be hostile towards them. So, the, time, so the, the location that is chosen for this is, in my opinion, is perfect, right? You've got, uh, those are your two options if you don't want to go through with the ceremony because that's part of the requirements. If you're not circumcised, you'd be cast out. So uh, that, that's what your two options are. 
The other benefit, the other, uh, you know, a longer or looking forward here is if you think about if you're in a new place, um, what do you, especially a place that uh, you're about to conquer, what do you want to do? You, you probably want to start preparing for war. Um, you probably want to go gather food. You probably want to go, uh, you know, I would want to go explore. Probably not a wise decision since people are going to want to try to kill you, but, you know, different things you're going to want to do. Uh, get yourself established in this new place. Uh, by the fact that half the half the population is going to be essentially disabled for a few days, uh, this works out very well in the fact that it allows the, con the congregation of the Israelites to focus on the ceremonies they're about to conduct for the first time in 40-some years. Right, so uh, they complete this, they complete crossing the Jordan on about the 10th. Four days later, uh, they are to observe the Passover. So by the time they do the Passover, uh, the men have healed up some, uh, but remember also along with the Passover is a feast of unleavened bread. So there's a span of about 12 days-ish here that uh, the people are going to have to sit in a foreign land, foreign to them, and um, it's going to sound wrong, but essentially do nothing uh, with respect to conquering the land, right? They're, they're going to uh, be observing Passover, uh, so they're going to be worshiping for this time period, worshiping God for this time period, but with respect to actually going to battle, they're not doing anything, at least from the human perspective. So being disabled, it, in a way, to me, this is um, God protecting his people and allowing them to not be distracted with other things and allowing them to focus on him for this first, first 12 days. <clears throat> so further, why would God do this now? Um, I know I've talked about the time of the time of year, you know, kind of the location and different things. Uh, but with respect to the people, why does he want to do this with this people? So kind of a play on a movie quote, he's moving from the old and busted to the new hotness. I would kind of rephrase this a bit. He's moving from the old and rebellious to the new and obedient. Right? This is a, a transition time. So they're moving from focusing on things of the past, their escape from Egypt, uh, to now crossing into Jordan. Uh, one of the quotes from one of the commentaries, at the beginning of its entry, Israel's entry into the land, the generation identified itself with Abraham and his descendants, and so with both the obligations and the promises given to God's covenant with Abraham, it also identified with the covenant given through Moses to all Israel by listening by listening to God, and by seeing the promised land of Canaan. The generation of Joshua 5 took upon itself all the responsibilities of the covenant through the covenantal sign of circumcision. Through circumcision, it could lay claim to the promises of the land that God had given to Abraham and to his descendants. So this is the turning point between God and his people. which is evidenced in verse 9 of Joshua chapter 5. Verse 9, Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So with respect to, so rolling back to the reproach of Egypt, what was the, what is that referencing? So 
each time the people rebelled in the wilderness, each time they disobeyed, and Moses went and interceded for them, every time he interceded, it was to, res- to respect the name of God. It wasn't for the people. It was, it was Moses' concern for how the people outside of Israel would view the Israelites or view Yahweh. So specifically, there's three references here um, that, kind of, that, doc- that talk about that. Exodus 32.12. So Moses speaking to to Yahweh. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent concerning doing harm to your people. Numbers chapter 14, verse 13. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your power you brought up this people from their midst, Verse 15, now if you put this people to death as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 28, lest the land from which you brought us say, which is Egypt, because Yahweh was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So it's at this point, right, where God is finally going to, in his time, defend his honor amongst the nations, specifically Egypt here. So God is going to restore all of his glory amongst, this, amongst the nations surrounding the promised land. Yeah, surrounding the promise, all the nations surrounding the promised land. Um, if you also think about this, um, I've kind of elaborated on this a very little bit before, but Egypt also has influence within the promised land, that southern portion, right? If you look at the map, they butt up right up to, to Israel, at least modern Israel. So they would have had some influence, they probably would have had some colonies, towns within there, which they're about to be taken over by the Israelites. So uh, in a spiritual way, a mental way, and a very, in a very physical way, uh, God is about, to roll, is about to reveal himself amongst his people to the nations surrounding him. So still answering the question of, of why now. In verse, verses 10 through 11, Josh, they, it, Yahweh has commanded them to celebrate the Passover. So verse 10, Then the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal and celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the yield of the land, unleavened cakes, roasted grain. So further the providence of God is shown here in that um, when they cross over into the promised land, as I talked about, time of year with the snowpack melting and the river flooding, uh, that also means that uh, it's a time of year where um, where the harvest is about to be, where barley harvest is about to occur. So God is bringing them in. He's, there's a bounty that is available to them now that they're there. And so they're able to be able to celebrate the Passover. The Passover 
um, in this transitionary period is turning from uh, looking at the exodus from Egypt and celebrating their entry into the, the promised land. So, as I said, with respect to timing here, um, the men being disabled or nearly disabled for a, a time allows them to really focus on uh, per- participating in these in this feast of unleavened bread following the Passover. So, when they celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, as we already read earlier, basically they're only allowed to do work that allows them to eat for the day. Right? They're not supposed to do anything else. Go out, gather food, come back, and and, and eat it. That's the only work that they're allowed to do. And so verse 11, we're told what it is that they're actually going to eat what, and what, they're, what they have. So Joshua verse five, chapter 5, verse 11, lists unleavened bread and roasted grain. The element common to both of these is that they were foods of disordered circumstances and time pressure involving uncomplicated preparation. So unleavened here is talking about, as I was, as I kind of referenced before, um, uncomplicated preparation. Basically, kind of raw. It is what it is. Um, what they could put together in a short time. And each time that unleavened food outside of this feast is referenced, it's always with a, a time pressure associated with it. Here, the time pressure is right. They've just crossed over into the land. They've uh, every. You know, half the population has been fairly disabled, and so uh, they don't have much time to be able to meet the requirement here of celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But other times that are mentioned uh, is unleavened bread was prepared by Lot for uh, for the angels when they came to visit him in Genesis 19. Obviously, when Israel left Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, uh, roasted grain was a part of the rations for David's father. Uh, David's father gave to him to take to his brother in 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 25, it was part of what Abigail prepared in a hurry to take to David. So the Israelites, so with respect to this, right now they don't have time to do a lot of preparation to be able to, to participate in this feast. So in the years to come, they would be able to fully uh, partake and have plenty of time to fully enjoy the range of the produce of the land. But on this occasion, this occasion, emphasis is hurry up and uh, is, is to hurry up. This also marks a transit. The other transitionary point here is in verse 12. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that, the, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the produce of the land of Canaan during that year. So God uses this feast, this time of worship, to mark the time when he's going to stop providing manna, so food from the sky, and he's going to, he is now going to do it by allowing the land to make produce for them, be fertile and produce for them. So going... God's providence is still here. He's still going to be taking care of them from feeding them. But instead of food from the sky, it's not going to be food from the land. As I mentioned, uh, when they came into the land, it's, it was time for a har- barley harvest. Thus, the grain and everything they would need for these feasts was readily available. 
it was, also, you know, it was a good time to, to come in, more of the providence of God and his timing and bringing them into the land when he did. So with that, with our, kind of close out here and closing out on uh, God providing man to them, Exodus chapter 16, verse 35. And the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Therefore, at this point, God has completely transitioned Israel from wandering in the desert and providing them through means of extraordinary means to now placing them in the land and now that Israelites living off the land. Israel's consumption of the land's food is a symbol of taking possession of the land. God had promised Israel a bounteous land and with houses filled with all kinds of good things that, that they did not provide, wells they did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves they did not plant. So now Israel has finally crossed the river and is now enjoying the first fruits of the promise of their promise covenant with God. With that, I wrap up at least the the first majority of Joshua chapter 5. I think there are some two pathways that is two that comes to mind. Lessons which are screaming for our attention right now. If you are to go outside, what if a person goes to church or not? Or even if you are to interview believers, the average person will tell you that he's a Christian. He's the main Christian as an Israelite. And the question is why? And that's the situation the children of Israel found themselves at that time. They are receiving the blessings of God. Why? All other nations were afraid of God. Material blessing would be prosperity, be protection, and everything. But if we were to tie to after why in just few verses like 15, you can count circumcision 10 times. Because if you are to bring circumcision into our modern Christian life, Paul said, not a circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. So circumcision is an outward expression of an inward work. Okay? So being circumcised, it's almost like today being water baptized. But being circumcised is the same word for the word identified. Romans chapter 6. Here do we have the children of Israel beside Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Tephen. Almost all of them never crossed the river uh, resting. They never saw anything in Egypt. And the second generation that they have not experienced any personal contact with Christ. They have experienced God through their family life. And that's the danger of Christianity. There are times we can say we are Christians, but our Christianity is not direct relationship with God. Yet, we are getting the benefit of other people's fearing us. 
And that is why God is bringing them. Okay? That you were Christian not because your fathers were Christians. But you were Christian because you have a direct contact with God. So now God is helping them to do a painful thing. Cut the flesh. The fleshly things. So in as much as we are raising our kids in the faith, we shouldn't assume that because they are called Israelites, and therefore they are Israelites indeed in their heart. So we should do the best we can to bring them close to Christ and for they themselves to have circumcision, to be identified with Christ. And if not, then we become Christians in name only. Truly, we will benefit the material form. But are we having the internal, the spiritual connection with you? That's the question. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't hit it explicitly, and I didn't hit it explicitly hard at, at all. But right, the reference that is made, as you just stated, right, being circumcised, you know, I talked about it being an outward expression. Right, the people in the wilderness were circumcised. The first generation were circumcised. The second generation that actually inherited the promised land were not. Uh, so, you know, we talked about we talked about this um, when Scott was teaching Sunday school, or as Scott was teaching Sunday school, was going through Romans, right, chapter two, verse, chapter two, uh, chapter four, um, and there's multiple other places, right? It it's a sign. Here, uh, I would say for us, you know, we today we kind of equate it with saying a prayer, right? I went up front, I checked my box, I said my prayer, I'm good to go. Um, others, it may be baptism, right? I've been baptized, I went, said my prayer, I've been baptized, I'm good to go, and move on. The distinction is the people, the distinction even here in chapter 5 is the obedience, right? How do you know that the outward sign actually represents reality? Uh, the spiritual standing is that the people are being obedient. So, yes? One, one thing also, we do not miss the fact the unbelief. The people of Israel, the unbelief. You know, God says, I want to get rid of the generation that practically did not believe me. So he decided that generation to die, and then I want to create a new generation that actually believes in me. They got to be circumcised and everything. So you could be circumcised, you could follow all the protocol, you could follow all the ritual. But one of the things, like you said, follow the commandments of God, and they fail to follow the commandments of God. They unbelieve, you know. And, and we see that. I mean, you look at Germany, the birth of the Great Reformation, Martin Luther, right? generation from the 1500, 1700. Then what happens? The whole hierarchy, the whole thing. Now we got the Nazis, we got the World War II and all this stuff. What happened? But now the church is coming to rebirth again in Germany. People want to learn about the gospel. But see, the process of God to every generation is, okay, this generation that believes in me, guess what? I'm going to get each generation that believes in me. They, they, you know. So that's amazing that even though they did not receive the God's promises. The people that receive them are those that believe in Him. So, you know, it's, it's a big lesson for us to understand that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Lord, you mind closing us? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the lesson that Joshua teaches us. And Father, thank you for Joshua's example to us. Do not be afraid. No matter what he's facing, the enemies around him, the giants in the land, Lord, he had faith in you. Help us to have that kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.